This episode contains descriptions of violence and sexual assault. Discretion is advised. This is the Cul-de-Sac Insomniac, and I'm Ophelia. And I'm Tori. And we're going to keep you up all night. Tori. Hi, Ophelia. How are you today? I'm okay. How are you? Good, good. I'm very tired. Yeah, I know. You were telling me. Thunder's not good for dogs. We had thunder last night and uh, not fans. No, no. This has really been like a very gross July. I have to I say. I kind of love thunderstorms, but I don't. I do too, but it's been like, because oh, of the dogs, I it's 150 but. degrees. Wait, yeah. no, now it's raining for four days. Well, it's 150 degrees in this studio, I'll tell yeah. you. Always is. A funny thing, so I'll just go ahead and tell you my topic, because I don't know, if for those of you who don't listen to the podcast, Tori and I don't share our topics with each other mm. until we get together, Right. and I'm going to learn how to say the word topics correctly someday, one day, and not say topics. <laughs> but anyway, we don't share what they are because we, we want to be surprised, right. but I'm just going to say now that we're here... When we get to my topic, we're doing haunted cars. Mm. And the reason I'm telling you is because uh, we were waiting for Tori to show up. And I heard a car door in my driveway, very distinctive sound. Mm-hmm. I heard the door shut. I went out and I said, oh, sounds like Tori's here. Mm-hmm. And my dogs get all riled because when someone shows up, they get all worked up. And of they course. went to the front door and they're all. So I thought, sure, she's here. I go out. Nobody's there. I look all around. I look on the side of the house because we have more than one driveway and the mm-hmm. whole thing. And I'm going back into the house, and then Tori shows up. Yep. And pulls in. So, Spidey the, senses. I, I guess, I don't know if that's a haunted car. It's like like a uh, car. Uh, my car arrived ESP, five minutes before I did somehow. Time slip, maybe. Mm, Portal. I don't know. Again, Portal, I, maybe. Yeah, I just, uh, you're psychic, I guess. Maybe. Maybe. But and the so dogs. are the dogs? That's weird. Yeah. I don't... So, I don't know. So that happened. Yeah, that's creepy. Other than that, nothing too exciting. And just like, just a little weird. Like, just a little tiny bit weird. There's always something just a little weird going on at this just house. Slightly like things off. that just shouldn't. Yeah. They don't seem that weird, and you just hear these noises, and you go, and the thing that you're sure is happening is just definitely not, not happening, happening, or something yeah. else is happening. And yep. just enough to keep us on our toes. Yeah. Nothing too freaky, mm-hmm. but just enough to keep us guessing yeah yeah like every time we record in this room which we've been doing for a while now it sounds different yeah every time no matter what and i don't understand and how there's that's just possible. noises that that aren't here when i'm working because i work in this mm-hmm. this is my office i work in here every single day mm-hmm. but when we get together to record there's always something yep. going on and that yep. we have to do all this work and move all the stuff around and that's yep this room's weird anyway. This room's so. weird. Well, this is the haunted room in your house. So it May- makes sense maybe. that we record in here. Maybe. I don't so. know. Yeah. So how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I have a very, very sad story for you this week. Mm-hmm. And next week, I'm actually splitting this up into two parts because this is a very long story with a lot of complicated things happening. So. Well, mine's, it, it's sort of sad, but it's it's mostly just horrifying. <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't say I'm surprised. Yeah, mine, I will say, is also horrifying. Uh, well, we've been here for a while already pre-pre-pre-podcasting, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where we just talk. Eat. We, we do a sound check. Mm-hmm. And we eat. Yeah. And then we do our sound check, and we're all ready, and then we just talk into our mics for like three hours. Without being recorded. And just, then decide maybe yeah. we should actually do the podcast. So That's pretty much how it goes. Why don't we just jump right into it? I think that's a good idea. This week, we're going to be talking about the Bear Brook murders. Yeah, I already hate it. So, in the summer of 1985, Jesse Morgan was 11 years old, and he lived in Allenstown, New Hampshire, in a trailer park called Bearbrook Gardens, um, which abutted Bearbrook State Park. He and his friends that summer had invented a new game. It was pretty much hide-and-seek, except whoever was seeking was riding around on a four-wheeler, which is, like, pretty, I feel like pretty ideal hide-and-seek if you're 11 and you live so next to a state park. This? 1985. Yeah, because we don't Who let cares? kids do that stuff right, anymore. Right, they're just like, okay, just come back later. Um, and we'll see you, and that's fine. Whatever. Yeah, take the four-wheeler. Who cares? You're 11. It seems safe. Nothing could possibly go wrong. <laughs> so, on one summer day, Jesse was playing this game with his friends Scott and Keith in the state park. Jesse was the one riding the four-wheeler looking for his friends when Keith called out to him because he'd found a barrel that had the lid on it, but it wasn't completely sealed, and there was some plastic sticking out of it. So, Jesse drove the four-wheeler with his friends over to the barrel where they tried to take the top off, but they weren't really successful. They'd managed to kind of unlodge it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, because they were 11, they kicked the barrel over, obviously. Um, And then, for some reason, I guess because they're not in a horror movie, um, they just kind of left it there. (laughs) They didn't... They were like, okay, we tried to open it, but we couldn't. But... They said that there was a smell like rotten milk and some white liquid spilled out from where the lid had opened, which is just so deeply horrible, especially when you think this, these kids are 11 years old. They're so, yeah, but yeah, they were like, "Mm, we're bored of this barrel and they just left it. Didn't like one of the, I think Jesse said he told his mom, but like that was really it. Nothing really came of anything. It's like, that's nice, dear. Go play in the forest. (laughs) Get back out to where that barrel is and play on your four-wheeler some more. Yeah, exactly. But obviously, that's not the end of the story. Um, Just a few months later, the barrel was rediscovered, this time by a hunter in the park. The hunter called the police, who sent Officer Ron Montpleasure to investigate. And the hunter told him that he thought that he had found a body, but Montpleasure said he wasn't really worried. A lot of people would, like... I guess, dispose of, like, pets or whatever in this state park, and he thought, oh, maybe somebody shot a deer or something like that. He really didn't think that it was going to be a big deal, but he was wrong. Plot twist. Yeah. He opened the barrel, which was still lying on the ground from where the boys had kicked it over, um, and he said that when he opened the barrel, he could see a decomposed face looking at him, Uh. which is just... So awful to think about. Just so, so bad. So this What is, is it with you and the faces? I don't know. This is not the I first time it, you've told me a story like this. You're right, it isn't. I don't know why this <laughs> keeps happening, but it does. But, like, of course that would... Like, that's just the most terrifying thing that could happen, uh, so of course that's what happened. It's just so... Ugh. Yeah. 
So obviously this freaked him out. And he was the only cop on duty that night because this is such a small town that he was the only cop working. So he set up a perimeter and called for backup. The Allenstown police force was so small that citizens were deputized to help in keeping out the press. So they contact, even like Jesse, his dad had to help to like keep the perimeter safe and everything from anybody kind of trampling over stuff. So what Officer Montplaisir had found inside the barrel was not just one body, but two. The first was a woman believed to be in her mid-twenties, and the second was a girl between eight and ten years old, which is so terrible. It's, yeah. Both victims had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head, and their bodies had been partially dismembered, wrapped in plastic, and tied with electrical wire before being put in the barrel. Because it just continually is going to get worse just this whole time. Hate to say it. Their bodies had been entirely skeletonized by the time they were found, and it's believed that the bodies were there anywhere from a few months to a few years. They really weren't sure at that point. They had no clues to the identities of the bodies, so two sketches were created with the hope that someone might recognize their missing family member or friend, but nobody did. And it probably didn't help that this was not the only murder that the Allenstown police had to deal with that week, which is kind of crazy. Because the state of New Hampshire sees only about 15 murders a year, but just the day before, November 9th, 1985, the body of Danny Paquette was discovered in his garage in Hooksett, New Hampshire, just six miles from where the barrels had been found. Of course, the police believed that these two cases must have been connected, but it would later turn out that the timing of the discovery of the barrel and the death of Danny Paquette was purely coincidental. Unlike the case of the bodies in the barrel, police knew who the victim was, had plenty of evidence, and believed plenty of people might wish to do him harm, but both cases still had no solid leads. Six months later, in May of 1986, Danny's death was ruled accidental. A rogue bullet from a hunter must have killed him. Um, And if this kind of sounds like bullshit to you, like, that's definitely not what happened, you're correct. (laughs) Um, Live your life in such a way that the police can't figure out who killed you and don't care to know. Right, and they're like, well, if we can't figure it out, it must have just been a hunter, I guess. I don't know. Do people, I I don't know up in Hooksit, can you just hunt anywhere? Like next to somebody's garage? I hope not. But, yeah, you're correct if you think that that's bullshit. Um... Because a private investigator hired by the police actually looked further into the case in 1999 and his death was ruled a homicide in 2005 because that's very obviously a homicide, I have to say. Like, very unlikely that a hunter just accidentally shot and killed him. But, you know. Without the benefit of modern DNA testing, Allenstown police had almost nothing to go on to identify the bodies that were found. So on May 10th, 1987, they were buried at St. John Baptiste Cemetery with a headstone that reads, Here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl child aged 8 to 10. Their slain bodies were found on November 10th, 1985 in Bear Brook State Park. May their souls find peace in God's loving care. So... They got a nice burial, even though nobody knew who they were, which is really sad. And then nothing happened in the case for years. There were no suspects. No one recognized a sketch of either victim. Without knowing who the victims were, the police had no way of finding out who may have wanted them dead. And this went on until the year 2000, so 15 years after they had been found. At this point, the case had been given to the major crimes unit of the state police. The case was given to Detective John Cody, along with a few other cold cases, for him to kind of basically try to work on it when he had free time from other cases that were active that he was working on. Mm -hmm. 
Cody decided that he wanted to see the location where the barrel was found for himself in person, so he drove to Allenstown. With the case file in his hand, he made his way to where he believed the barrel was found and then started searching a larger area for anything out of the ordinary. And then, just 300 feet away from where Jesse Morgan and his friends had kicked over the 55-gallon barrel, John Cody saw something he had just been looking at in evidence, a dark blue 55-gallon barrel on its side. He went back to his car to get a flashlight, and when he returned, he opened the barrel to find plastic and what he believed to be a bone. Ultimately, inside the second barrel were two more bodies, somehow even more sad than the first. The bodies were of two young girls, one about three years old and the other about two years old. All evidence points to the second barrel being placed here around the same time as the first barrel. So while the police were doing everything that they could to discover information about the first two victims, two more were just a football field away and they hadn't been found. Awful. It's really horrible. But just like the first two victims, they had no information. Now it seemed like an entire family had gone missing, likely almost 20 years before, and they still didn't know anything about them. DNA testing revealed that three of the victims were related, but not the fourth. The adult woman was likely the mother or maybe some other close family member of the oldest and youngest children, but the middle child, who was just three years old, was not related to any of the other victims, which is really bizarre. Mm -hmm. Just like the first two victims, years passed before any breaks in the case were made. In 2009, the case was handed over to the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit, who then turned it over to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They decided to do radioisotope testing, which allowed them to determine some information about the whereabouts of the victims early in their lives, as well as in the weeks or months leading up to their deaths. So they could test their teeth for mm. isotopes, and that would tell them where all the victims had spent like the earliest part of their lives while mm. their teeth were still developing. And they could test their hair, which would give them information like literally going back the length of the hair to where they had spent time, which is really interesting. They said, uh, like, part of it is about, like, leaded gasoline. Like, you can tell where someone has been because the type of lead in leaded gasoline in the United States come from, comes from one place, whereas if it's in Europe, it comes from another place. Mm -hmm. So they can tell kind of where you're from, which seems like it wouldn't narrow it down that much, but they literally didn't know anything about these people. Yeah. So any, any profile, I guess, is better than none, and then right. you go look and see... Right. If anybody's been reported missing who fits any of the criteria, I guess it's... Right. It helps some. Like, it's easier to look at all of the missing people in the United States than it is to look at all the missing people in the world. The radioisotope testing also showed that the woman, in the last six months or so of her life, had spent some time either in the north or to the west of where she had spent the rest of her life. And the middle child also spent some time in the same region at the same time. So this is likely when that middle child joined this group of the yeah. woman and the other children. And now, this might seem weird, but we're going to take... A detour. Uh, we're going to go back in time and to California. So in 1999, a woman named Unsun Jun had just started dating a man named Larry Vanner. She was in her 40s and had never had much romantic success. So when she introduced Larry to her friends and family and they were disapproving, it strained all of her relationships. By 2001, the couple was living together and got unofficially married in a backyard ceremony with a Star Trek theme and no marriage certificate. <laughs> In May of 2002, Unsun and her friend Renee Rose were supposed to go on a trip together, but Unsun didn't show up, and she'd sounded anxious on the phone the last time that she'd spoken to Renee. Renee tried calling her house over and over, and finally got a, back, got a call back from Unsun's boyfriend, Larry. 
He told Renee that Eunsoon's mother was dying and that she'd gone to Virginia to see her. Later, he told Renee that actually she was too fragile to talk on the phone since her family had made her depressed. And then another time, he told Renee that Eunsoon was actually in Oregon um, and that he'd come home for a day or that Eunsoon had come home for a day and then left and went to Oregon, which just all sounds mm-hmm. kind of weird and suspicious. Renee obviously didn't really believe any of this, so she tried to find a reason to go to Eunsoon's house to see if she was there or if she was okay. She offered to clean the house before Eunsoon got home or to come over and cook dinner for Larry, but he didn't want her to. Finally, she got so frustrated that she told him, I'm going on a 10-day trip, and if I don't have a voicemail from Eunsoon on my machine when I get back, I'm going to call the police, and that ended up being what she had to do. The police brought Larry Vanner in for questioning to try to figure out where Ensign was. First, he told them that she was in Oregon, overseeing a construction project at one of his properties. Then he said, actually, she is in Oregon, but she's seeing a therapist because she had a mental breakdown, and that if the police call her, it's probably going to cause her to have more problems, so they shouldn't do that. He could call her in the presence of the police and prove Mm, that she's there. Yes, and so actually, while he was at the police station, he called a psychiatrist's office in Oregon with the phone number from memory. So they were like, well, I guess maybe that is true. So they called the psychiatrist, too, and they said, do you have this patient? And the psychiatrist said, like, I can't tell you the name of my patient. Like, that's against, I can't do that, you know? Um, So what they ended up doing is they described her appearance, and then the psychiatrist was able to say, no, I don't have a patient that looks like that. I can't tell you the names of my patients, and I also can't tell you the names of people who are not my patients. Exactly, exactly. Wink, wink. Right, yeah. So... Very odd. The police brought Vanner to another facility to be fingerprinted, and by the time they returned to the station, the results were complete. What they'd found was that Larry Vanner was not actually Larry Vanner. That was just one of his many aliases. He was also Curtis Mayo Kimball and Gerald Mockerman and others totaling about half a dozen identities. Yeah, they had, like, tried to look him up, and they just got, like, an identification number and no social security number and all of those other things. So they were already suspicious. And Curtis Kimball turned out to be on parole for child abandonment of a little girl about 15 years before. And police knew that this probably didn't mean anything good for Eunsoon June. So they went to the house where the couple had been living and found something horrible. They checked the house to see if anyone was there and found nothing. Behind the house was a shed, which looked like someone had recently tried to dig in the floor of the shed. And then they went to check out the garage. The entry door was padlocked, but I guess somehow the detectives had Vanner's keychain, so they used his key to unlock it and went into the garage where Unsun's pottery studio was, and they also found another door that led into a small, unfinished room of the house with a very disturbing scene. The room was filled with cat litter. Really, really weird. The pile was about three feet tall and five feet across, and underneath the cat litter was Unsun's mummified body. Yeah. It was 250 pounds of cat litter, like a truly insane, and he bought it all at one place, which is equally weird, but just really sad for Unsun. In the months before her death, Unsun had become more estranged from her friends and family. All of their last emails were about Unsun's relationship, with Unsun telling others to just leave her alone and let her be happy with Larry. Her friends and family felt that Eunsoon wasn't acting like herself, and it later turned out that that was because Eunsoon hadn't written any of the emails at all. Larry Vanner had been emailing her family, pretending to be Eunsoon. 
So he made sure that all of the last correspondence between Eunsoon and her family and her family were fights about her relationship, which is like so fucked up and mm-hmm. demonic and evil. I hate it so much. At the trial, Larry Vanner, under his true identity, Curtis Kimball, shocked everyone, including his attorney, by pleading guilty to Unsun's murder and accepting his sentence of 15 years to life for the crime. Which everybody's like, this does, like, no one ever pleads, you know, like, you don't plead guilty to murder. It's just not something that usually happens. But the truth was that Larry Vanner slash Curtis Kimball slash Gerald Mockerman didn't want the police digging any further into his past. Detectives didn't stop looking. Detective Roxanne Grunheide, who'd already been working on the case, looked specifically into the charge that put this man in prison the first time, child abandonment. But we're not going to talk about that this week. We're going to talk about that (laughs) next week because this is a very, very long story. So I will this will come back and connect to Bear Brook, I promise. But it's not going to get any less Mm -hmm. complicated. So and that's your that's where you're leaving us. That's where I'm leaving you hanging this time. Next week, we can talk about the rest of it. But um, Uh, yeah. He sounds great. Such a terrible guy. And funnily enough, he only gets worse. It's it, He's just going to keep getting worse and having more names. So, yeah. It's amazing to me how people just do that. And, and especially yeah. in this day and age. I wonder if it would get caught more easily now. But I don't know. I think so. I think that, like... Pretty much everyone now has, like, a paper trail, kind of, Mm -hmm. or a digital, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm not saying law enforcement will find you, but Google will. But Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Like, there's just, you can't be off the grid Because a lot of the departments, I don't know if they all communicate. Maybe they do now. I mean, it seems to me. I think they do now more. There should be more of a nationwide, like, we upload this. Because I understand at one point they couldn't. Right. But now you can. So I'm assuming that they have systems now where everyone can be in touch with anyone, which is why someone commits a crime in Wisconsin and gets caught in in Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, But everyone's tracking you. Your phone is tracking you. And this kind of brings up an article I was just reading yesterday where the number of serial killers is way, way down. I mean, in Mm. the 70s and 80s, uh, this article said, and I I didn't write it down because it wasn't my... I just meant to mention it. There was something like 500 serial killers operating in the U.S. Yeah, they call that like the golden age of serial killing. And now they said there's like maybe 25. That's correct. Because... How do they know that, though? Well, that's what what I mean. I guess they string cases together and say, okay, this is... And they make the profile and they're like, well, this is... So some of the reasons Mm -hmm. are because so many people have cell phones. Yeah, yeah. There are cameras everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, they get, so it's not that maybe they don't try, but right. so many of them get caught before they can Be commit another one. Yeah. And yeah. Um, also, there's a belief that because it's so much more difficult to get away with now, mm-hmm. that they think some of them are just saying, it's not worth it. no, they're just, you know. And, um, Another thing they said is the helicopter parenting. Oh, really? You know how we were talking about 1985, go off in your ATV, and I said, yeah, Yeah. that's a a yesterday parent. That's not a today parent, because as a today parent, I can tell you, no way that Mm -hmm. people don't, and their kids have phones, and they can can locate the phone, and they can ping the towers, and now you have the DNA evidence, so people aren't just roaming around. And right. going from state to state doing whatever, you can you can 
catch people and you right. can and the number of cases that they solve mm-hmm. is higher because yeah. they have so much technology at their disposal. So yeah. and they're even still like DNA technology is still progressing. Yeah. Like we're still learning more and more. Even like genetic genealogy well, didn't exist 50 I years ago. I mean if ago. you think about it with ancestry.com exactly. and and yeah. uh, 23andMe and mm-hmm. Genealogy.com, people are just offering this information up for you. So yeah. it must be so much easier to create profiles mm-hmm. now. You've yeah. got to worry about that if you're a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone in my family is going to send this in right. and I'm going to get caught. And yeah. so, yeah, so that, so your chances of being killed by a serial killer now are much, much reduced yeah. compared yeah. to where they were. I know we like to joke about the police state, but. Right. Yeah. It has Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, the like genetic stuff. I was, as part of this case, I was looking into part of it and they said like maternal or paternal DNA tests, it's like 21 markers or whatever. And the genetic genealogy tests that they do, like 23andMe, whatever, it's like thousands of markers that Mm -hmm. they look at to be able to see your like fourth, fifth cousin, whatever. So that's what I'm saying. Someone distantly distantly related to you that you don't even know or know about right could trip you up yeah but just before i forget i want to tell you guys my sources which is the new hampshire public radio podcast called bear brook which i highly recommend it was really really excellent really super well done um as well as Rhonda randall's blog oak hill research and nhpr.org so if you want to hear more before we get to this next week that's where you can find out some more information well, that was awful. Yeah, I know. It was a really terrible case that just will keep being terrible, sadly. It's not good. Well, the podcast's not going to get any better. Great. <laughs> Can't say I'm surprised. Because as I mentioned earlier today, we're talking about haunted cars. Mm. I have to drive my car home from here. Well, these are specific famous haunted cars. So these Ooh. aren't just random stories of people who bought a used car and okay. it was haunted. Although I did come across... A number of those, but I just didn't include them because I I had more than enough Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. horrible stories. My sources are bookmygarage.com, volocars.com, and autoblog.com. So here are some famous haunted cars. All right. President Kennedy's Lincoln Limousine. Oh, no. (laughs) The SS-100X was the Secret Service name given to President John F. Kennedy's Navy Blue 1961 Lincoln 74A convertible that Kennedy, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy, the Texas governor, and his wife sat in on November 22, 1963, when shots rang out and ended the president's life on live television to the horror of a nation. Ugh. That car's super haunted. Well, this is the weird part. They kept the limo in service after that. <gasps> they di- Are you serious? And Lyndon B. Johnson used it. Uh, no. So after Kennedy's death, the, the limo was bulletproofed and it was painted black because Lyndon Johnson thought if it's navy blue, it's going to remind everyone of the assassination and that will be traumatic and I'm thinking think you're riding in it yeah that's too weird oh. so I guess they did that so people wouldn't realize that it's he was still car. using the same car because that's I think that's kind of messed up I mean retire that thing 
that's like you don't want to buy a house that somebody was murdered in, but like this is so much more. And this was someone he knew, right? Exactly. Like, it's so much more specific and personal. I mean, how? Ugh. And you just keep using that, and I'd be sitting in, and I'd be like, I'm, I'm sitting right where Jack was sitting when he was. Yeah, I'm that's... sitting where Jackie was sitting when her husband was Ugh. dying. Her arm, I, I don't get it. I mean, it's the White House spring for a new car. Yeah, I think that like just switch it to a different car. I don't. There must be another car that you could just start using. It can't be the only limo they have that you could bulletproof and which maybe you should bulletproof the president's limo to begin with, but that's another... When the top's down. But, or but he had the top down. Right, that Which they did, hard. the Secret Service didn't want him to do, apparently. And he wanted to be accessible to the people, which is why they didn't want you to do it. <laughs> because oh, you were accessible to the people. That's so sad. Uh, but anyway, so it was used for another eight years. In 1978, it was retired to the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, and visitors to the museum frequently report an apparition dressed in gray standing near the car, especially in late November. Well, yeah. What do you expect is going to happen? Also, that's like, that seems kind of weird to put that on display. There's something like a little... A lot of these cars are on display. uh, That's uncomfortable to me. I don't don't vibe with it. This is messed up. Franz Ferdinand's Grafenstift limousine. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, no. Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and the Archduchess Sophia were riding in this Grafenstift limo when they were assassinated. This part's... Well, the whole thing is messed up, but this is really messed up. They had survived an earlier attempt on their lives earlier that day. Yeah, this that story is literally it's crazy. so messed up. So the the limo broke down on their way to the hospital. They were going to go greet and comfort some people who had been injured in the assassinate assassination attempt on them. Mm-hmm. And it broke down in front of a cafe yep. where the failed assassin was sitting in there, like and he said, whatever, oh, being all bummed out hey, and having his coffee and this and is lunch. clearly meant to be right. And they broke down right in front of yeah. right in front of the I cafe. I will say this sounds the most of any story I've ever heard of like a failed attempt of a time traveler trying to stop the world war from happening. Like that, right. I can't say like that is very like clearly the, the, the time traveler stopped. It yeah. I did it. I succeeded. Thank and, and no, Final fates. Destination said, plot twist. Yeah, yeah. So the limo stalls. And so the Bosnian, it was a Bosnian architect, I think. Okay, so so we've talked about architects before. Yes, we have. And um, uh-huh. they're problematic. I'm just going to yeah. say that they're problematic. I can't disagree with and, you on that one. You know, you're an architect. And I will be someday. He's an, well, you're working towards yeah. being an architect. And I, you know, it's suspicious. It's just, it's a little suspicious. I, I, I can't, I don't even have anything to rebut that. You I know mean, what I mean? Why do so many of them go crazy? That's a really good question. Just buildings. I, I'm not going to explain it. I build in The Sims all the time. It's not that stressful. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same. It's not that hard. That's what I you use in my m- job. Move a wall. <laughs> <laughs> so the Bosnian architect, who was the previously failed assassin that morning, became a successful assassin that afternoon. He successfully killed the Archduke and Archduchess, and he lit the spark that started World War One. Yeah. 
So the car was next owned by an Austrian general who went insane while riding in the car through Vienna. Just, like, went insane during oh, the car trip. Okay, see, I am i don't like waste and stuff, but when people are getting assassinated in these cars, crunch them up, okay? Just I, get them out of see, here. See, the thing is, if the first one happened, he was driving in the car and went insane, yeah. and then someone else bought it and said, well, people yeah, go insane, it, it doesn't happens. mean it's the car, and then that person gets assassinated, that's two strikes. Okay, we're done with that car. Yeah. But we're not done with the car. No! Because then the governor of Yugoslavia bought it. He had four accidents, the last one in which he'd lost his arm, (gasps) before he decided maybe he didn't want that limo after all. So he sold it to his friend. What? I... Do you hate your friend? You must hate your friend. Because the friend got into a crash six months later and died. Oh my god. So then a German captain bought it. And Jesus. is this car invincible, indestructible? <laughs> like, what's right? It's question. crashing constantly just... and being lit up with bullets, and people are going insane, and this car's still running. Is it like 75% made out of gum like, at this what is point? It made? How <laughs> is it functioning? Know. Or just like titanium? What is it? What did you make this car out of? I have heard that this, though. It cannot be destroyed. This doesn't. Oh, that's so bizarre. And. He was driving it, and he died when he swerved to avoid two pedestrians. The car had 15 owners and took 13 lives <gasps> before it was not counting the First World War, which it was at a hand and starting of lives for stalling. Too. Oh my God! So this might be the deadliest car in history. Jesus. Before somebody finally junked that. Uh, yeah. How can you look at the stats of that car after it had three owners? Like, ugh. That's ridiculous. That's insane. Bonnie and Clyde's haunted car. Ooh. On the night of May 23rd, 1934, the crime spree of the infamous Bonnie and Clyde came to an end when police ambushed their 1932 Ford Model 18 near Salus in Louisiana and peppered it with over 100 bullets, killing them both in- instantly. Ugh. The bullet-riddled Ford now sits in Whiskey Pete's Casino in Nevada. Why? I don't know. Why do they have to do this? And some photos of the car show strange anomalies and inexplicable objects nearby are inside, but the objects don't appear to the naked eye. Mm. Also, the spot where Bonnie and Clyde were killed, people don't see them around the car. They see them in that location sometimes. But then they see weird stuff around the car or sometimes I guess it's like some of their possessions that they see in the car in photos but then they don't it's they can't see it that is weird but at least people didn't just keep driving it well yeah that's good I mean I don't love putting a car where people were murdered in a casino that seems kind of gross to me but yeah at least it wasn't just like eh we'll give it to somebody else and they can drive around and my kid also get killed yeah like and they um so when they got killed, they got lit up. Yeah, I know. I saw the movie. And then, and they were, <laughs> and they were so badly shot up that to move Ew. them, they just towed the whole car, the whole thing away. Yeah. But they didn't wreck it. Like someone got hold of it, and then yeah, this is the and it's all shot up. Yeah, and it's just sitting there. And that this story is crazy. This next one, oh boy. the most evil car in America. 
the inspiration for the evil car in the Stephen King novel, Christine, mm -hmm. was a 1964 Dodge 330 called the Golden Eagle, which came to be known as the most evil car in America after it allegedly killed 14 people. <gasps> the car was first purchased by a police unit in Old Orchard Beach, Maine. All three officers assigned to drive it end up committing murder-suicides where they <gasps> annihilated their entire families oh and then God. killed themselves. All three. Like one, two, three. So, so my thing is after the second time. Yeah, I don't think you give it a third chance. Stop assigning it. Like maybe don't. The no, first crunch, time. Crunch, crunch, crunch. You can say, wow, that guy was under a lot of stress that, you know. Then the second time, you know what? As they say on ESPN, once is a fluke, twice is a pattern, three right. times is evidence. Yeah. So, um, so the police decided they were done with it, so they sold it. One or two people too late, I gotta tell yeah. ya. But they didn't just junk it. They what? sold it. That's so evil. That's evil of the police to be like, well, I'll give this curse to someone they else. They sold it to Wendy Allen, who was known as the Sea Witch of Old Orchard Beach. And she never had any tragedies in that car. Ooh. However, she did report that when she drove on the highway, the car would fling its doors open and jam the steering wheel. So I think it was trying to get her off. Oh my but God. she's the sea witch of Old Orchard Beach. She so. said, I'm going to still drive you, you old rat bastard. So she imposed her will. In the 80s and 90s, several people tried to vandalize the car because it, and, and some of them were like from, they were from some church mm, up in that they area. They didn't like and, old sea witches? And they got, well, they were trying to stop it from being evil. Be, being evil. So sure. they decided we're going to destroy this car. Um, and so that didn't work because one vandal was struck by lightning while trying to vandalize the car. Another one was trying to, and I don't know where they were trying to vandalize it, in the middle of a highway, because one was decapitated by an 18-wheeler. What the fuck? And two kids who were attempting to vandalize it were hit by another car and thrown up and onto, and died when they Ugh. landed on the Golden Eagle. That is horrible. In 2008, a child who supposedly touched the car went on to kill his entire family. Why? Where is this car just for decades and decades committing all these murders? <laughs> Crunch the car. And that's another thing. Cars, like regular cars don't last 30 years. No. Why is it just the so evil So why do ones? the evil cars last that long? They're like, no, I'll get into 72 accidents, but I'm fine. After that final tragedy, the church members of that church where the people had been trying to destroy right. it, got together, stole the car, chopped it up into small pieces, and sent the pieces to junkyards all over the all Oh, over so the it could country, be evil everywhere? So that it couldn't be rebuilt. Ugh. Wendy Allen, the sea witch, who's apparently still kicking at of that course. point, mm -hmm. attempted to track down the pieces and reassemble her card. What? No Why? word on if she was ever successful. Why would you want to do that? Also, I can't believe that, like, some vandals all got killed, and then finally they were like, no, all of us together, and we're all fine. And we're but all going to... why do you want to put it back together? Wendy! It, it must be just the force. I mean, when it has to be that car, you can't find some other car? Or li just literally any other car. Did you curse the car, Wendy? Seriously, what's your problem? Oh. I want to I... like a sea witch, but damn. <laughs> but not a sea bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible idea. James Dean's Porsche 550 Spider. This story's messed up. This story is. I've this, heard this one before. Uh, this thing is. This is why. Get ready for a wild ride, kids. Yeah. On September 30th, 1955, on the way to a race in Salinas, California, 
actor James Dean lost control of his Porsche 550 Spider, flying off the road and flipping into a gully. Dean was killed and his passenger, Rolf Wetherick, was seriously injured. Dean's friend, George Barris, gained control of the wrecked vehicle and began to sell off the parts. Therefore haunting everyone else. The car was not happy. (laughs) After Barris sold the engine and drivetrain to two doctors, they outfitted their vehicles with them and entered a race in Pomona, California. While racing, both of the doctors crashed the cars and one died. Mm. Barris was done with the car at this point, so he donated it to the California Highway Patrol, who were going to use it as a warning for reckless drivers. Like, this car killed this famous actor. Wasn't James Dean also, like, he had just filmed, like, a public safety ad about safe driving Yeah, and he was going to a race, too. Right, and, like, he had just filmed this thing about Mm -hmm. safe driving, and then this terrible thing happened to Mm -hmm. him while he was driving to a race. So the CHP wanted to use it as a warning to reckless drivers, and this didn't make the car any happier. Yeah. The first place the CHP stored the car was in a garage that promptly burned to the ground, with only the wreckage of the old car left standing. Great, because it's invincible like all these other evil cars. Like all the other evil cars. My Toyota Corolla, I mean, I... I, (laughs) Knock on wood. I'm not going to say anything. She's she's doing fine, but there's no way she's lasting 30 years and taking out 40 people. I I hope not. I mean, I had an argument with a guardrail and she lost. (laughs) The CHP continued to use the car, taking it to high schools as a visual aid for the dangers of reckless driving. On the way to one exhibition, the car broke loose from the truck hauling it and crashed into another vehicle, causing a fatal accident. That's my nightmare. Me too. That's horrible. And, and trucks with logs. Trucks with logs with the claw dangling off yeah. is my... I hate being behind those trucks. Because uh, why... It's like hanging on by a piece of I'll ditch down floss. an exit. I don't even need to go down and oh, get back up. I hate them so I much. Because that's so what I think it. is going to happen. Yeah. Oh. I don't like that it did happen. So the CHP still didn't get the memo. They took the car to another school where the car fell on a student and broke the student's hip. The spider, still in possession of California Highway Patrol... By now nicknamed Little Bastard. Nothing little about it. Fell off the trailer a third time and crushed a truck driver. Oh my god! Two thieves who tried to steal the blood-stained seats and steering wheel from the spider ended up getting injured and came away empty-handed. Well, don't do that weird fucked up thing. Everybody sucks here. (laughs) Everybody... Well, I feel bad for the students. They're just like, right. dude, I'm just, oh, yeah, you brought that to me. In this specific situation, everybody's like, <laughs> but in all the other ones, it's 100% the car. And the CHP, apparently. On Little Bastard's final journey back to California in 1960, the Porsche mysteriously disappeared and has not been seen since. So it could just oh, be roaming well. around somewhere. I hate that. Yeah, No, they just need to crunch up all these cars. Yeah. I like, first that. time, as soon as there's something... Devastating, just and heinous like that. But I don't understand how it like flies off the highway and flips hard enough to kill someone, and it's salvageable. It's fine, right? You can still use. I don't. How would it be financially possible? Like, how is that car not? How can a wreck be so bad that it can kill someone, but the car comes out of it okay? I that's disturbing. Mm -mm. So what killed the person then? If the car held up, why is the person not still alive? They're flat under the car, probably. No bad. Surrey, England's ghost crash. 
On the night of December 11, 2002, police in Surrey, England were flooded with calls from drivers who kept seeing headlights swerving off the road along the A3 highway. When police arrived on scene, there was no sign of a crash. Police continued to search the area, eventually finding a maroon Vauxhall Astra wrecked in a ditch with the decomposing body of a young man inside. Further investigation revealed the crash had happened five months prior. What? There were no further calls of swerving headlights after that. Was it a coincidence, or was this victim of a car wreck reaching out beyond the grave to let someone know what had happened to him? Oh, that is such a sad story. That is a sad story. Those are my stories of haunted cars. Wow, I don't want to get into my car right now. Well, your car is probably not haunted. That's true, that's true. I'm not famous, and I don't think the person that owned it before me was famous. And you've had it. I mean, these happen, they seem like they happen pretty quickly. Yikes. Like, people walk by some of these cars and boom you're cursed right. well oh. now i'm worried about the cars i might walk by like i don't touch any of the car that you don't yeah don't don't no, touch a car i think it's the don't solution don't brush up against it no ew oh i hated that so much don't leave the house really is is where we're going with right let the ghost come to you I exactly guess. yeah Ugh. Yeah. that's creepy i don't like that that car is just like out there somewhere yeah, I mean, the other ones have been destroyed, and right. the last one isn't really an evil car. It was more like just sending a message, like, hey, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, that one's really just sad. That's just yeah. like an accident that is really depressing, but... How horrific is it that someone I know, you to just love could just found. fall off the map? Yeah, that's terrible. And no one knows... Right. I mean, no one must have known he was traveling that area because you think right. the family would say well he was on this road or he right. was coming here right and you would Found go do him. a search yeah. for him oh yeah like no one at his job noticed he was missing no like you know for months well you don't i i don't have the details so i don't right. know what kind of yeah. situation job, it was, and, and we had that happen at a place where i worked where this kid and i really got along with him we used to chat every single day because you know i'm into sports he's into sports and mm-hmm. And he went on vacation to Las Vegas and never came back, never called, and they terminated him. And I said, has anybody checked like checked him? him with his family? Like, right. they said, oh, well, I guess he's not coming back because he just, I said, but. Or is he like, okay, Are though? we 100% sure something coming didn't back? happen? Right. Is he not and coming back on purpose? I never found out from oh my God. him. But apparently he did um, come and he had something from the company and did eventually come and drop it off. Oh, wow. Like, that's scary. Maybe though. three or four I weeks later, nervous. but like in the meantime, no right. one, I'm thinking, yeah. The, and someone's like, well, we would have heard. I said, well, but would you have? I right. Mean, you think he's on vacation. Yeah, exactly. What if something. Right. I, yeah, I always, I get nervous if my like coworkers that are always on time are 15 minutes late. I'm like, hey, are you, yeah. um, are you, you doing okay over there? Like, what's happening? Yeah. Never mind just, like, not showing up and then being mad about it. Yeah. Because, like, I, for me, I always assume something terrible has happened because that's just how I'm wired. Because <laughs> you're uh, in this family. Right, exactly. But, yeah, I know. And just be, like, hope for the best the whole time, but not get pissed off. That's, oh, that's so scary that that can happen. It is scary. I don't like that. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be me. But what I do want to be me mm-hmm. is doing this podcast with you yeah i love it and we're doing better with our time we're not we're 17 not 17 hours yeah 
we're really trying to tighten that up because we we're just a lot of, you know, yakety yakety, but that's pretty much our um, thing. Which we're doing anyway, we're just recording less of it. Right. So, <laughs> so we're trying to up our game, kids, and yes. so are the dogs. <laughs> So if you like this podcast and you want to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook at Cul-de-Sac Insomniac, Instagram at Cul-de-Sac Insomniac, Twitter at CDSI Pod, our website at culdesacinsomniac.com where you can see all of our show notes and links if you want to do your own research mm -hmm. and you can listen to our episodes there. If you follow us on Apple, please give us a like and a five-star rating and a good review. It makes us feel good. Mm -hmm. If you want to tell us anything, we're collecting your stories. Yes. We do read many of them on the air. We are working on a couple of right now. Mm -hmm. And we just want more. We want to do your stories. Yes. I'd love to do whole episodes that are just from our listeners. Hit us up at cul-de-sac-insomniac at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. And we will see you next week. Yes, we will. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.